The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Well, judging by the some 60 email messages I deleted from my email server today sent by the faculty, there has been some internal alarm about the title of this address and its relationship to other events that are taking place not too far from us. But the title of the address yesterday, today, and tomorrow is intended as I want us to focus our attention on Paul's teaching here in 2 Timothy 3 and 4 to help us a little on this Thanksgiving occasion to understand some of the reasons why together in our community we may be thankful to God and also together to have some sense of the responsibility as well as the privilege that the inheritance into which we have entered provides for us. And like, I suppose, all the other members of this faculty, I have personal as well as corporate reasons for reflecting on thankfulness for our beloved seminary here. As a teenager, for a brief moment, the thought passed through my mind how wonderful it would be to come to study at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Unlike our beloved Dean and my friend, who is Scotch-Irish and not just Scottish, I hadn't even traveled to Northern Ireland, and the idea of traveling to the United States of America was about as likely as me going to study theology on the moon. And I think I can speak for many in the faculty who, in the providence of God, find themselves here in saying that I count it as one of the most remarkable and blessed providences of my life, that the education I failed to get in other institutions, I've been privileged in getting from, indeed, some of those who would have taught me in those days in the 1960s. And so together we rejoice in the privilege of celebrating 75 years, primarily of God's faithfulness to us, but also in tremendous and diverse ways, God's people's faithfulness to him. And as I've been thinking about this occasion my mind again and again has turned back to Paul's last words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and 4, because although obviously these words come at the climax of a very personal and intimate letter, they also come at the hinge context of Paul's life, conscious as he is that the days of present apostolic ministry are coming to an end, it seems to me fairly obvious that he pours himself into Timothy on this occasion 
because he longs to see Timothy as a kind of model of future ministry in the Christian church. He invests himself in a unique way in Timothy because he wants to see Timothy become for the likes of us a kind of standard of excellence in Christian service and ministry. And so in this sense, a letter that is inherently a personal letter is also, as we so frequently refer to it, a pastoral letter, giving counsel to the church of Jesus Christ in every place and indeed in every age because we share the same redemptive history. We live, as Paul says here in chapter 3, in the last days. And we are conscious of how easy it would be for us in the 21st century in the world to pick up his description of the stress of the last days and apply them to the times in which we live. And he is essentially saying to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 14, that the best way to be thankful for the past is to continue in faithfulness in the present and into the future. And I want us to try and think honestly just for a few minutes about what this means to us, how God's Word is that He taught and the life that He lived, that we live and we breathe Scripture, that we live and we breathe Jesus Christ, and that we've this phenomenal privilege of having entered into a glorious tradition of those who have gone before us and passed on the Scriptures and opened up the Gospel and displayed to us the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ that have made us love Him more and enabled us to serve Him more faithfully. And yet I think as we look back particularly perhaps on earlier days because circumstances are used by God to create men and women of God. As we look back on our earliest faculty and ask ourselves the question, what was it that seemed in our eyes to have made them such giants in the land? Why was it that their influence spread so widely from this tiny landmass? And the answer, I think, is enshrined in what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. There seems to be in the New Testament and in the history of the Christian church an integral relationship between commitment to the gospel, willingness to suffer for it, and fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. And as we have already heard from President Logan in these wonderful words of J. Gresham Machen at the opening of this institution. It was born in a womb of suffering. These men who were such legendary scholars were prepared to lay scholarship and life in tribute at the feet of Jesus 
Christ. And it is partly because of that that the Lord stored their tears in his bottle that he has poured out over the decades on this institution such wonderful blessing and made our work, as we have witnessed visually tonight, extend to the ends of the earth where we are joined from those small mustard seed beginnings with brothers and sisters in almost every part of the world who are, like those who taught them, faithful to Jesus Christ. And we, like the Apostle Paul, we have also suffered in different ways and been preserved. We have had our blows and our disappointments, our sorrows and our strange providences. And yet in them all, the Lord has delivered them. Many of us who are on the faculty look back 11 years ago to the strange and awful providence in the death of Ray Dillard, the age of 49 that now seems to me to be so amazingly young, who taught so many of us formally as his students and all of us like some latter-day weeping Jeremiah-like prophet. And I don't think I will ever forget reflecting as Bill Edgar drove me from his burial service in the morning as we made our way out of the burial ground, catching sight out of the corner of my eye of a kind of parable stuck in the ground. It was the sign of the security company who were responsible for the graveyard. And on it were simply three words, security by advent. And I thought to myself, thank God that it is true, <laughs> that we are secured by the advent of Jesus Christ that we are presently sustained by his advent before the face of his Father where he lives forever to make intercession for us. And he will not let us go until his final advent when we will appear with him in glory. And if he is able to secure his church in that way, even when God buries his servants and we with him bury them, God will complete the good work that he has begun. And it's into this marvelous inheritance of those who have been faithful, those who have been willing to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you and I are the happy heirs. So the inheritance we have received from the past. But a word secondly about the situation that we face in the present. It is, of course, precisely the situation described to Timothy by Paul in the last days, times of difficulty, times of stress, times characterized, as he makes clear in this long list of awful characteristics, by love of self rather than love of God, by the perversion of of the drive of the image of God to the God 
whose image we are to reflect back upon ourselves and to live for our own glory, to dethrone God. And this, of course, is the world in which we live, times of stress. How does thanksgiving manifest itself in times of stress? Well, it manifests itself, of course, by continuing in the truth it has received. As for you, by contrast, says Paul, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And he makes clear to Timothy that that is going to be no easier for him than it was for the Apostle Paul, that faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the scriptures of truth will set us as a minority in our culture and make us despised among men and women. And so he says to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue. And of course, it's in this context and actually not in the context of authoring a textbook of systematic theology that he brings in the Scriptures, that Timothy has known from childhood that have this telos in making him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ that leads Paul on to assure Timothy that everything that is Scripture and breathed out by God is useful to equip the servants of God, to express their thankfulness for the gospel of God and their faithfulness and their use of the gospel of God. And so in these words that are so important to us here, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work. That is what this seminary was set up to do, to produce, in Machen's words, specialists in the Bible, those who are competent in the Bible. And yet, like the Apostle Paul, unless I mistake Machen, that meant more than developing exegetical skills. I've been struck in the last couple of weeks trying to reread a little Machen by the fact that so much that was so influential from Machen's lips and from his pen was not so much a display of his understanding of what God once said, that is to say his exegetical skills, which were considerable, obviously. But in his sense that what God once said, God says to a new generation with specific application. In a sense, it wasn't so much Machen's exegetical skills, but his prophetic gift 
that made him the man and the leader he was, and this institution, the institution it was. That he saw not only how to exegete Scripture, but the ways in which Scripture was useful to the people of God, pointed for the people of God, relevant to a world exactly like this, relevant to the kind of world we saw earlier on that was shaking and crumbling at the very center of the financial empires of the world where men were utterly devoted to the love of self rather than the love of God. And he believed in that context the most important task in the world that God had given to him was training people to be specialists in the Bible. In this sense, that they would not only speak about the Bible, but they would speak out of the Bible as though they emerged from the Bible with hands full of the Word of God, relevant to the world in which they lived, edifying to the people of God in the times that they so obviously faced. And it is more and more for this great calling that we see ourselves existing today to train specialists in the Bible who are competent exegetes of Scripture, but who speak not as the Pharisees and scribes who are familiar with the information, but in the power and spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ who know the Word of God in themselves in order that it may come through themselves. Notice again the harmony in what Paul says between what I am and what the gospel is. It's the glorious marriage of the two that is faithfulness in the present. And of course, that leads him as he addresses Timothy to speak about his calling to build for the future, the inheritance he has received from the past, the situation he faces in the present, the calling he is given to build for the future. He is to herald the Word of God. And that, of course, is expressive of his sense of the authority of the Word of God. It is the voice of the King the living voice of the king as he establishes his kingdom. And as an interpreter of it, Timothy is to handle it didactically. He is to teach. He is to handle it patiently. He is to teach with patience. That is to say, on the one hand, he is, in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, to lay bare its truth. And on the other hand, he is to do that with the patience that characterizes somebody who is able to say, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your bond slaves. The willingness to teach patiently requires the kneeling of the servant 
and never the stance of the master. And I suppose that was partly the secret of the greatness of some of these men for whom we give thanks to God. When I first came to Westminster Seminary, it was commonplace to see the legendary figure of Cornelius Van Til sitting on a bench out there. And I lost count of the number of people who said to me, I never imagined he would be that humble, modest, servant-spirited Christian believer. And yet insofar as there was a greatness, it was the greatness of the servant spirit, first to Christ and then to his people, being willing to go anywhere for the sake of the gospel. So, says Paul, teach the word of God with great patience. And teach it with a polemical edge. Fascinating combination there when he goes on to say, now you are not only to teach, but you are to reprove and rebuke. He's picking up actually what he said in chapter 3. There shouldn't really be a gap between chapter 3 and chapter 4. He's saying this is what Scripture is given for, therefore use it according to its function. And that means reproving and rebuking a marvelous combination of spiritual paradox. Reproof and rebuke comes easily to the impatient, but with great difficulty to the patient. Patience comes with great difficulty to those of us whose native instinct is to reprove and to rebuke. But the Spirit of Christ in the Lord Christ has harmonized them both. And it is in that blessed harmony that we are to bring the Word of God to bear on our own generation didactically, patiently, and yes, polemically. Because we understand, I hope, as Paul is underlining it to Timothy here, that false teaching spreads like gangrene. I've often been impressed reading the early fathers about how clear for all, for all their low understanding of some things, how clear they were on this principle that martyrdom will never kill a believer, but false teaching will poison people to death. And therefore, false teaching is far more to be feared than martyrdom. And so there needs to be, whatever our native sensibilities are, if we are to be faithful to Scripture, there always needs to be that polemical edge destroying the spread of gangrene because we understand that men's immortal souls are at stake, that women's final destinies are at stake, and that these are issues of life and death. And that is why he urges Timothy to herald the word, not only didactically and patiently and polemically, but in a sense eschatologically. I charge you to do this in the presence of God before whom I will soon appear, 
who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. The Lord, the righteous judge, who on that day will reward to me the crown of righteousness and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And since many of you are skilled exegetes, you remember the very sharp contrast in Paul's language there between all those who have loved the appearing of him, Christ, and Demas, who has loved the appearing of the present age. And he's saying, in all of your use of Scripture, have a single eye to the last day, the final judgment, the glory of God, the great division of men and women. Because the things we handle here are the things that settle the destinies of men and women and boys and girls forever and forever and forever. And so when we become discouraged in our studies, when we find the reading difficult, when we find the lectures sometimes less than fabulously exciting, we gaze beyond the present day to the final day. And we say, O God in heaven who has made brothers and sisters before me in this place faithful to the end, give me a single eye to serve you for that day that I too may inherit the crown of righteousness on the day of your glorious appearing. I don't think it's just the onrush of middle age because it's been with me now for years to think this. That if what I am doing is not going to last for all eternity, why then am I doing it? If what I'm preparing for is not to prepare others for all eternity, by whatever means God puts at my disposal to do that, then am I at the end of the day building merely with wood and hay and stubble and not with precious stones? We are not here, my brothers and sisters, to build a reputation. We are here to build the church of Jesus Christ. And in any building project, and especially in this grand building project, while there is one Lord, there is a diversity of gift. For some, that gift is used in great public spheres. For others, that gift is used with almost total anonymity. You and I will minister in different places with different gifts to different people, some large spheres, some small spheres. But no sphere of the temple of God is an insignificant sphere to him, for he means that the whole temple shall last for all eternity, and he will come and dwell in it himself. And so we look to the past, and we gird up our loins for the present, because we have a single eye for the future. And day by day, we want to build with precious stones and not with wood and hay and stubble, a building 
that will last for all eternity. In one way or another, every discipline in this institution feeds into that great river like so many rivulets of God's multifaceted truth. Every member of the faculty with such a diversity of gift feeds into the great river that runs over your life if you are a student. The river from which you have drunk if you are a graduate. The river into which your life flows as somebody who has supported this institution for many years. And what a glorious privilege it is to know that that is the river of God. There is a river that makes glad the city of our God. God is in the midst of his habitation. And so let these be the words that cause us to give thanks and look to the future this evening. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the true theologian of the church, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And let us be faithful until that day when we too see him face to face and as conquerors are seated with him on his throne. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have given to us such a blessed and glorious tradition and that that tradition has been founded both upon the truth of your word and the faithfulness that you have given to your people. We thank you for the courage of those who packed their bags in the beauty of Princeton and came to an uncertain future, sacrificed privilege of an amazing kind for poverty and despite and lowliness in the eyes of the world. We are conscious that we have become rich because they became poor. And we pray that you would give us grace to be faithful to the riches that you have poured out into us through their poverty, just as into their poverty you poured out the riches of the one who became poor with a greater poverty that together with them we might become rich with eternal riches. We pray, our God, tonight for those who have labored in this institution, for those who are now in many different parts of the world seeking to be faithful to Jesus Christ, for some who have wandered from 
where they once were, we pray that you would reclaim and restore them, that memories of the past may fuel the dark embers of their souls and fill them with grace. And again, we pray for ourselves here, for this faculty and administration, for the board of trustees, for all of these students who are loved and taught here, for those who support us in every way. We pray that in your mercy you would keep us in the hollow of your hand. Help us to be faithful. Help us to follow your word wherever it leads us and have the wisdom to go no further. And help us more and more to develop a passionate compassion in these last days for this terribly bruised and broken world that to it, in the name of Jesus Christ, we may bring the good news that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of sinners. And so we give you our thanks because you are kind. You have remembered your covenant and you have been faithful to us. Help us, O God, in our great weakness to long to be faithful to you Give us the strength and grace we need for that very faithfulness. And grant that if Christ should not return, that when like celebration takes place in 25 years, there will be more faithfulness to praise you for. And this we ask together in Jesus, our Savior's name bridges the gulf between Timothy in Ephesus and ourselves here at Westminster Seminary. First of all, I want to reflect with you for a moment or two on the inheritance that Timothy and we have received from the past. Marvelous to notice that almost all the distinctive emphases of this seminary are in one way or another woven into the very fabric, into the warp and woof of this passage. And one of those emphases is, of course, the emphasis that the divine imperatives that come to us about continuing in faithfulness are rooted in the divine indicatives of God's faithfulness to and through his people. Timothy is urged to continue partly because he has observed the faithfulness of God in the faithfulness to God of those who first passed on the message of the Scriptures and the message of the Gospel to him. He knew them. He knew his grandmother and his mother who had taught him. He knew the Apostle Paul, as Paul underlines He had examined at close quarters by his presence with Paul the apostles' faithfulness to God's grace, and he had witnessed with his own eyes the suffering that the apostle Paul had experienced. 
And it is perhaps chiefly for this reason that we are able to continue because we have something to be thankful for in those who passed on the message of the gospel to us, who passed on the message of the scriptures to us in this particular institution. Different ones of us owe different kinds of debts to different faculty members of the past, and we all owe enormous debts to the relatively anonymous ones like Lois and Eunice, who supported and instructed young Timothy. I think for myself as a theological student in Scotland in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, that almost the only works of substantial scholarship of a conservative kind available to us had been written by members of the faculty of this seminary. And I think from an even more personal point of view as a teenager walking into a room in the University of Aberdeen and catching, I think I was 18 at the time, my first sight of Professor John Murray, whose name I had heard breathed in a committee meeting of the InterVarsity chapter. Professor John Murray is retiring from Westminster Seminary, somebody said, and we can have him to speak. And I sat there pretending to be wise and understanding, but actually thinking, who is Professor John Murray and where is Westminster Theological Seminary? And I see him in my mind's eye as though it were yesterday, somewhat gray-faced, those northern chiseled features, the hair matted down, the black suit, the white shirt, the black tie. And then, like some amazing revealer of truth, introducing me to a world of Christology so powerfully expressed, so passionately delivered in his distinctive way, as he sometimes did, slapping his thigh in unabbreviated enthusiasm for Christ and the gospel. And I realized that night that I had crossed some kind of threshold into a a treasure cavern that no one had ever displayed to me before from the Scriptures. And like others in our faculty, some of you who are graduates, owing debts to different ones because not only did they teach you, but because in some sense you were able to stand tall and say, I knew him. 